God, we, uh, we thank you for today. We thank you, that, uh, we thank you that Jesus did die and did rise again, Lord, for our sins. And we thank you that you desire, um, you desire a relationship with us, God. And we just pray this morning that you'll speak to our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. My name is Jeremy. I'm the student pastor here at Stonebridge. Um, I'm excited about being here today. Well, I was until David told me the passage. And so we're going to look at Revelation 2, uh, 19 through 28 this morning. This letter to Thyatira. And so if you, want to get, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get that out. Also, any of you who are just wanting to test your strength, if you want to go outside and lift that wall off mine or Bo's truck, that would be appreciated. So if you saw that picture at the beginning, it's still there. It's still in the back when you leave. There's a big wall on our trucks. So if you want to help us out, that would be appreciated as well. Uh, David, I think David is in, in route now to Germany. He was in Scotland this morning. He's, in, he's on his way to Germany now. And I completely believe that he planned his trip around the letters that we're looking at because uh, this morning, a little tougher, probably the harshest of all the letters in Revelation, so a little, you know, not, not a whole lot of warm and fuzzy uh, when looking at this, when looking at this, uh, this letter. So, but I want to give you a little background before we get started. Uh, the city of Thyatira, you can see it there, kind of in, in the middle, towards the middle of Turkey, away from the coast. Thyatira, out of all the letters that we see that are written here, it's, it's probably the least significant city of all of them, right? It's not as important as the other cities. It's not this hub of, uh, of, uh, of commerce or anything like that. It's actually, for your, to think through, it's probably more like an industrial town, right? So think about a lot of tradesmen doing, th- doing different things like dye, and purple dye was a big industry there. Um, and it's dominated by trade guilds. So... That, that language doesn't mean anything to you. Think labor unions, right? So the whole city is dominated by labor unions, and each one of these labor unions has a god or a goddess that specifically blesses or curses that industry based on how well or how poorly they worship that god or goddess. Okay, so economics and what we do are directly tied to our religious beliefs here in Thyatira. So you wouldn't be in... You wouldn't be in you wouldn't be able to make money if you weren't participating in, in the, the worship of the pagan, um, the pagan gods there. Known people, so Lydia, if you remember Lydia, who was Paul's first convert in Acts 16, she's from Thyatira. That's the only other time that the city is mentioned uh, in Scripture. She's a, she's a maker of dye, and so Paul, she's, like I said, she's Paul's first convert. Um, we see that in Acts 16. And what we see here is that because economics and religious worship go hand in hand, you had to be a licensed member of a guild in order to make any money. So that meant you went to the temple, you went to the festival, you engaged in all the activities of worship for that particular guy, you ate the meat, uh, sacrificed to the idols, and that meant you could do business. If you didn't do that, then you, you weren't able to make any money. So you, you weren't an active member in the economy at that point. And so the problem that we see for Thyatira as we go into this is we have Christians, kind of three levels of Christians here. We have those who want to make money, who are, or who are only concerned about financial gain, and they're in this one group over here that's like all things are permissible. 
They forget the part that says not all things are beneficial. But they're all engaged. They're completely involved. They're doing all the pagan things. They're doing all the worship of these different gods, and they don't really care. There's not a whole lot of remorse for them. Then we have this middle group of people who are dedicated to Jesus, but they're also dedicated to their families, and probably the conflict in their minds, their families went out, so they're willing to dabble, say, in this worship of, of these gods in order to be able to do business. So like this is like the end justifies the means type of idea. I'm going to do a little bit of this so I can continue to work and make money. I'm going to repent or at least feel bad about it, and then I'm going to go back and do it again so I can keep making money. And then we have the third group over here that says, the suffering's worth it, right? We're going to starve. We're not going to have money. We're not going to have jobs because we're not going to compromise any parts of our faith. Zero. We're, we're all in, and we'll just deal with it however we have to deal with it, but we're not going to compromise. And so I tell you all of that to give you kind of this context of where we're going. So that's, where we're, that's, that's the lens to see it through. Let's read verse 19. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you, you did at first. So there's the slight bit of encouragement that's in this passage. Right? This letter follows a similar pattern as the others. It's, it's pretty close. There's some, some slight differences. But anyway, it's to the letter, the letter to the, to the angel of the church. Again, that could be the pastor. That could be an angel. However you see that um, doesn't, doesn't affect our interpretation at all. But then J Jesus introduces himself again. It's description. This is the only time in all of Revelation that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. Other times there, he alludes to it. We know what he means by it. We know what he's saying. We know he's referencing himself. But this is the only time he actually says the Son of God. And I think that's, again, back to the religious practices of the Thyatirans. They believe that the emperor is the son of Apollo, the, the Roman god Apollo. And so they worship the emperor as the son of a god. And so what I think Jesus starts it off this way is so that he can say, I am the Son of God. He's asserting his own authority here. Don't get confused who I'm talking about. Don't think that this is the emperor. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the only Son of God. And so as he's doing this, he moves into this other description. Eyes like burning, like, like flames, right? That alludes back to Daniel. If you look at Daniel chapters 10 through 12, there's this being that, that encounters Daniel. A lot of people say it's Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus who's meeting with Daniel there, who has eyes like burning fire and who has feet like, like bronze. Two things here. One, Jesus is saying he's the one that searches our heart. He searches our mind. He sees to the inner parts of us. He'll actually explain that more as we go into the letter. But he's the only one that can see past all the walls, all the facades that we place up, and he knows our hearts. And this bronze, he's strong enough to deal with the problems that are there. He's sufficient to deal with those problems. And so that's for us personally, but it's also for this Thyatiran church. He sees what's going on in the church. He's, he knows their hearts and their minds. And he's willing to get into the mess, and he's willing to take care of it and fix it. Then he moves on. So that's kind of who I am. Here's his description, and then he talks about the positives. Here's what I know about you. 
He's aware of the church's deeds. He's aware of who they are. And so he talks about it. Love, faith, perseverance, service. He says, I see all that. You're much further along than you were before. You're much better at this than you were before. It's a contrast between the Thyatiran church and the Ephesian church. If you think back to the letter to the Ephesians. He's like, you've forgotten your first love. You keep the rules. You follow the rules, but you've forgotten your first love. They fell into the trap of legalism. The Thyatiran church is the other way. It loves well. It's, do, it's loving better than it did before. The problem is it's allowed things to seep into the church that, that will follow in the correction, right? Jesus is going to correct them in the next statement because while you're loving well, while you're serving well, while you're persevering, while you have faith, you've actually made a mistake and you're not holy is what he's saying. You've allowed unholy things, you've allowed pagan things to come into your midst. And because of that, he has this against them. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 20. Verse 20 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. That's back to the eyes of fire. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So, again, I told you the, the encouragement, a little light on the encouragement this morning. A little more on the judgment. So he's referencing Jezebel, right? And so those you, if you look back at 1 Kings, Jezebel is this Old Testament queen of Israel. Uh, she marries King Ahab. She's a Phoenician, so she doesn't worship the God of Israel. She worships the Baals, and she worships, she's this polytheistic culture there in, uh, in northern Mesopotamia, or this northern area near the Mediterranean Sea, just north of Israel. And Baal worship was characterized, it was very similar to Roman and Greek worship. It was gross, it was immoral, it was debauchery, it was self-harm, it was all these things. When you look at it, you're like, why? What are you thinking? What are you doing? But that's what worshiping the Baals look like. And Jezebel, while she's practicing this religion, she's not content with just practicing her own religion and letting the people of Israel do their own thing. She wants all of them to worship Baal like her. And so she goes on this, almost this extermination campaign. She kills 400 prophets of God. She engages Elijah in this battle um, during this time of, of just trying to, who's competing for the hearts and the minds of Israel. And Jezebel is going to lead thousands of people away from God. And so you can see the parallel here. This prominent woman, we don't know who the woman is in Thyatira. We don't know what her name is. There's lots of people who say she, it's this, 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 and this. You can, I don't think you can say. Just I think it's someone of importance within the Thyatiran church who has some type of audience. I don't know if it's formal. I don't know if she's getting up and speaking every week. I don't know if, it's a, if she's in a small group. I don't know what she's doing. But in some way, she is influencing people and persuading people to compromise their faith so that they could adhere to cultural and social norms of the time. And so she's moving. She's actually having influence. She actually has uh, the hearts of people compelled. Because think about it. She's in this camp over here. 
right? She doesn't care about the rules. I'm going to do whatever it takes. But people in the middle who are trying to figure out, am I in, am I out, am I following Jesus, or am I going to feed my family? You have this woman come along, and she starts telling you, oh, it's okay, it's fine, participate. God would want you to, even. And so these people who are dabbling, who are feeling remorseful, start moving into this camp of, well, this must be okay, because she's important in the church, and she says it's okay, so it must be okay for me. And so we start seeing people led astray over and over again, and it seems like Jesus has given her plenty of time to repent. He says, I've given you time to repent, but she refuses. Which follows with that suffering. I'm going to throw you on a bed of suffering. I'm going to kill your children. It's intense punishment. But the interesting thing is that Jesus then responds to those who are following her and says, but I'm giving you time. I'm giving you more time to repent of this. I'm giving her time. Jesus is patient with her. And she's refused it. She's refused it. She's hardened her heart. And so he turns to these other people and says, repent, turn away from what she's doing and come back to me, and then we're going to restore this relationship. But if you don't, the only thing that's left for you is punishment. And then last, he, he, he reminds them that his authority here, is, is he's, he's displaying his authority for the other churches. He is the one that searches hearts and minds. And so it serves not only just as a warning to these people, but it, it's a warning for the other churches as well, as well. That Jesus searches hearts and minds, and he rewards us according to our deeds. When I read that verse, I was like, oh, I don't know that I want to be record, I don't know if I want to be reported, rewarded, sorry, based on my own deeds. Like, I know the list of my deeds, and I don't want the reward for that. And it started making me think a little bit about... What that must have said to these people, the reward for their deeds, and they're falling away from them. And then I started, the, the only kind of, this is a tangent, by the way, sorry. The only thing I can think of with this is that the encouraging part of this is that if I follow Jesus, I'm not rewarded for my own deeds, I'm rewarded for his deeds. That as I follow Jesus, when God looks, when he wants to reward me for my deeds, the, deed, the only good deed that I have ever done in my life is say I'm following him. And so Jesus, God looks at those deeds. David used this metaphor a few years ago. He said, when we're standing in front of God, and, it, and if he has a, God has a book, and the first chapter is everything I've ever done wrong, and the second chapter is everything I've ever done right, that if I'm following Jesus, the first chapter is blank, and all God sees is the second. I thought about it more. It's actually not even blank. It's just covered over with the blood of Jesus that makes me whole. And so when God looks at me, and he rewards me according to my deeds, it's the reward of Jesus deserves, not that I deserve. And for me, that's the most encouraging part about this, pa of this passage. That as I follow him, he's going to reward me based on what Jesus has done. Last bit. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold you to what I... except. For, except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pot pottery. Just as I have received authority from the Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So he, 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 ends, he wraps this up again with encouraging. Jesus is brilliant, a lot of reasons, but in this way, it's encouraging. Here's what I have against you, and here's some encouragement. So for these people over here who are not following the Baals, who are not moving into pagan worship, who are holding the line, he says, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you the nations. And when he says that, he's not talking about all of you get a kingdom. What he's saying is, I give you authority over the spiritual world. I give you the authority over all kingdoms spiritually. And I think that's another charge, another example of an opportunity we have to engage in missions. That as we pray for people who are serving in, in, in the mission field, as we pray for nations who don't know Jesus, it's an opportunity to claim some of that authority that he gives us as followers of him. So as we follow him, I think there's a couple things that we need to look at. Um, I was praying about it, trying to figure out what do I do. Like, how do you take a letter written to first century people living in Turkey and make it somewhat applicable to us living in Marietta? Um, and so, I don't know. It was one of those things I just prayed and asked the Lord, I said, well, you gotta, you got to help me because I have no idea how to do this. I have no idea how to move in this. I have no idea what to do with any part of it. And I feel like what he said was this. I feel like he says that there's two types of faith that we have. There's transactional faith and then there's covenantal faith. There's transactional relationship and then there's covenantal relationship. A transactional relationship operates like it's a business arrangement. It's a business deal. You do your part, I'll do my part, contract is maintained, and we're good. I'll, I'll follow you, I'm going to mess up, I'm going to ask you to forgive me, you forgive me, I'll follow you, I'm going to mess up. And we live in this cycle of constant worldly remorse, and very rarely does that move us to a heart place of repentance. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not talking about the deeds. I'm not talking about what we do. I'm talking about our heart posture. Right? A lot of times, I know for me personally, as I'm following Jesus, there are some things in my life that I feel remorse for, but I don't repent of. I just do it again and feel bad about it again because my heart is hardened towards that particular thing. It's like this comparison of Saul and David. Y'all remember back when we did that? Saul, whose sins were, in our minds, far less hurtful than David's, he's rejected, and David's called a man after God's own heart. It's a heart posture that we're talking about that changes us from this, this transactional relationship to a covenantal relationship. So for me, personally, what this looks like, when I first became a Christian... I've told you all the story, all that stuff before I was 25 years old. And one of the things I felt like the Lord convicted me of immediately was my language. I didn't speak a different language. I used flowery language, we'll say. And it seems silly to talk about words like that, but what it, for me it was an outward sign of an inward change for all the people who I had been around for a long time so that they could see there's something different in me than, than there was before because just listen to the words he uses. Actually, listen to the words he doesn't use anymore. I was a basketball coach. I made a commitment. I'm not going to use those words to my players. I threw chairs, broke clipboards, slung stuff, but I didn't use bad words. So I wasn't convicted of those things, just the language. 
But it was like this turn in me. It was like this shift. And I felt like my heart was pursuing God. And I started going after him. And I started pursuing him. And then what happened was I had kids. And then some of those words started to creep back into my vocabulary. They challenged me over and over again. And then I started justifying it. I started talking about, oh, well, it's not actually that. Jesus didn't even actually speak English, so maybe he wasn't talking about those words not to use anymore, right? He didn't know them, so he probably still doesn't know them. <laughs> I try to explain all these things away. It's not that big a deal. And really, it's because I was in this mindset, this like ATM mindset. This is how I view God. It's like this far-off ATM machine. I take my card, I, go, I, make some sin, I commit some sins, I go to the ATM machine, I put my card in, that's my forgiveness, he gives me grace. And I walk away from it. And do the same things all over again, but don't worry, the ATM's still there, I'll go back when necessary, get some more grace. But then the problem comes with this, is that as my grace starts getting low, as the account starts lowering, then I got to do something. So I jump on a mission trip, I go on a retreat, I come to church like four times in a month instead of once. And so that recharges my account with God. And I go back to it over and over again. God's going to take care of this. I keep going back and keep going back. This grace, and really what I'm living in is cheap grace. There's no relationship in that. It's this con contract. It's a contractual agreement, a transactional agreement that we have that you provide grace, I want it, I give what you need for me to get it, and we just kind of keep going on our way this way. That, for the long time, was my relationship with Jesus. And what I looked at was not how can I be in relationship, it was like, where's the line? If you've got teenagers, you know this. They want to know where the line is so they can get right up to it. And be okay, right? Maybe step over every now and then and deal with the consequences. But that's, that's how I live my life. It wasn't about how holy can I be or how much relationship can I be. It was how much can I get away with and still get in. Scripture talks about you get in with your hair on fire. I'm in trouble. And so for me, it's this thing. It's like it's not this transactional relationship it's this covenantal relationship and what covenantal relationship quickly moves us to is using a bad word these days holiness because when we say holiness in our minds we immediately go to legalism we immediately go holiness in our heads equates to rule following right or this i got a few pictures when we think holiness we drive by a church the weather never changes in hell that's funny. Y'all can laugh. If you think it's not it's hot here, imagine hell. Right? That's what, follow the rules. Get in. My, the last one's my favorite. Stop, drop, and roll won't work in hell. Hold on. But you're welcome to come. Still welcome to come in. But stop, drop, and roll's not going to work. So when we say holiness, we all think we have the list of rules. All right, I got to follow the rules. And that's not at all what he's talking about here. Holiness is this repentant heart. It's a heart posture of repentance. Not a rule-following robot. Rules take care of themselves as we fall in love with Jesus. Obedience takes care of itself as we become more like him. And so we have to change our, our, our definition of holiness. 
J.A. now it says holiness is this way. He says holy, holiness is the, nat- excuse me, the nature of holiness has to do with the proximity to and the association with the presence of God. We have to know him. We have to know who he is. And then we have to know that he's present even in the small things so we can trust him in the big things. If we don't know him, we're never going to trust him. And he becomes this distant ATM machine that dispenses grace as we need it. But when we know him and we know him intimately, it changes everything. Brother Lawrence is this author. He wrote the book, The Practice of the Presence of God. One of my favorite books. I read it three or four times a year because there's so much truth in it. He says this about knowing God. He says, the more we know him, the more we would desire to know him. As love increases with knowledge, the more we know God, the more we will truly love him. We will learn to love him equally in times of distress or in times of great joy. It's all about how we know him. We, don't, we know him by getting into the scripture. The Bible tells us about him. We study the Bible to get to know him, but we also listen to the Holy Spirit. It's not the only way. The Holy Spirit constantly and continually reveals more of the Father's heart as we engage him and ask him to. The Bible shows it in words. The Holy Spirit transforms us by action. And so covenantal relationship looks like recognizing and knowing the presence of a father, not the presence of a distant being or the absence of a distant being. It calls us to move. Transactional faith is distant. It's not personal. Covenantal faith is personal. It's intimate. It's intense. And a lot of times it can be messy. But it's worth it. It's worth it to know the love of a perfect father. It's worth it to know that God calls you a child and he loves you so much so that he gave his son for you. I hear people say all the time, well, God, I don't deserve God's sacrifice. Yes, you do, because he says so. Because he made it. He did it. And so if you don't hear anything else this morning from anything that I've said, know that God loves you. God loved the Theotirans. That's why he encouraged them and he gave them time to repent and turn away and come back into right relationship with him. And it wasn't about what they were doing. It was about their heart. It was about the posture of their heart, a repentant heart, one that desires to be in relationship, intimate relationship with their father who happens to be the creator of the universe. And so this morning, we're going to move into a time of, of, of response, a time of ministry. If you're in that place where, like for me, faith became stagnant for a while. It actually, the, the, probably a better word for me, faith became stale. Because I was just cashing in my card and getting what I needed from it. But faith is transformative when we realize it's, there's a covenant, there's a relationship there, and he wants to have it. If you're in that place where it's been a while since you've connected to God's heart, We want to pray with you this morning. Not in the sense to recharge your car, but to reorient your idea of what holiness is and reorient where God is in your life. So we're going to take a few minutes. If uh, if you're on the ministry team, if you'll come up. Bo, if you'll come back up. We want to give you the opportunity this morning to respond 
and ask God to reveal to you. If you have trouble understanding how much he loves you, let him tell you. Ask God to reveal how much he loves you. And ask God to change this relationship. Come near, make us more aware of your presence in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that you want to be in relationship. We thank you that we can trust you with the smallest thing and the biggest thing, and that you, we can trust you with everything in between, God, and we just want to do that this morning. We want to engage you in a relationship of a father and a child, not a robot and a machine. That we pray that you'll show us how holy we can be, how much like you we can be, And I pray, Lord, that you'll change the desires of our heart to be your desires. As we get to know you more, Lord, that we'll want to become more like you. And those rules that are out there, those just get, those are byproducts of our our faith in you. We unintentionally keep the rules because we're intentionally in love with you, God. So I pray that you'll move in our hearts, God. You'll show us, you'll search us. You have eyes to see our hearts, God, and I just pray that you'll search each one of us and that you'll move us, you'll show us the places where we're treating you like that ATM and that you'll restore that intimate and that personal relationship. God, we thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all come forward if you feel led.